This episode of The Homilist is brought to you by Ozark Christian College. For over 75 years, Ozark Christian College has been preparing students for ministry. Ozark's 15,000 alumni are serving in all 50 states and in 100 countries around the world, carrying the gospel to every part of the globe as ambassadors for Christ. For more on Ozark's residential and online degrees, visit occ.edu. Welcome to the Homilist Podcast. I'm excited to introduce to you my guest for today. He is Dr. Stephen Mansfield. He is a New York Times best-selling author, speaker, and a speaker coach. He first rose to global attention with his groundbreaking book, The Faith of George W. Bush, an international bestseller that Time Magazine credited with helping to shape the 2004 U.S. presidential election. He has written celebrated biographies on Booker T. Washington, George Whitfield, Winston Churchill, and Abraham Lincoln, among others. But I will tell you that his book, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, has inspired men around the world. It is full of insight, motivation, and truth. His bravery-bolstering words on the topic of masculinity is only rivaled by his noble work with the Kurdish people to be a leading voice in support for them against the evils of ISIS in the Middle East. This is my conversation with Dr. Stephen Mansfield. <laughs> hey, who's the artist? Who's the artist in the background? Right over your left shoulder. Uh, let's see. The painting? Yes. Uh, a pretty interesting story. I was in Peshawar, Pakistan, and uh, some years ago, and I went to the what used to be the British Club. And of course, you know, I've, I've written about Churchill, love Churchill, teach about Churchill. And uh, on the wall at the club were two uh, paintings, and I said, "Man, I'm impressed with those." Well, it turned out those paintings had been hanging there since Churchill was at that club back in the day. So I was talking to the manager, and he said, "Listen, we're gonna, we're having to do some remodeling. We're going to take those down." And they sent me. Can you believe it? They sent me both of them. So um, I can't. So they never belonged to Churchill, but there's one over my desk here that really moves me. It's a, the famous story of drummer Riddick, a drummer who, uh, uh, when they were in a great battle, picked up sword and went to fight, even though he wasn't trained for it. And he's wow. in a kilt and everything, which of course I love. And then this back here is a bunch of guys picking up wounded soldiers on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's, 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 these are paintings meant to inspire you know, British valor back in the day. But Churchill would have looked at these. Wow. And they would, have, they would have hung in the club encouraging you know, that tribe of men. So anyway, I've got that's, most of this thing in my office. Pretty cool. I don't know incredible. if the artist is to answer your question, but that's, that's the background on the painting. Excellent. Well, Dr. Stephen Mansfield, welcome to the Homilist Podcast. Thank you, man. It's a privilege. This is great. This is great. Well, I want you to know I'm in, uh, I'm in two men's groups um, that, have, that have formed, at, and both of them just completely different types of groups. And the book that we are, the book that we are going through is, is this one. Have you ever seen this one before? I have seen that before. Seen, this, <laughs> seen this a time or two? So uh, we're, we're going through those. I mean, we're going through the, the maxims. And man, I'm telling you what, it's been incredible. It's been incredible. Right. Guys who aren't even Christians who've come to this group and they're finding something about it that's just been, you know, really strong for them. So appreciate it so much. What you've done has been really great. Well, that means a lot to me because I wrote the book so it would appeal to Christians, but also reach non-Christians. So I'm really Absolutely. Glad yeah. Yeah. And it's doing it. It's doing it. Good. So I just, so I just finished uh, choosing Donald Trump and Lincoln's battle with God. Aha. All right. Um, there is a, there's a line in the opening line. Uh, one of the opening lines in, in choosing Donald Trump. 
to where you say something along the lines of, I don't know if it's that the sacrifices were left out too long. They were left out in the sun too long. There's a line. And I mean, captured me from the beginning. And I was like, son of a... Like, I was really hoping, like, I'll pick up books and I'll listen. And I'm like, I'm not listening to this guy. I can't do this. And that line, that line just grabbed me. And I was like, now I'm locked in. Now I am locked into this book. It was great. It was great. That's great. I'm glad. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It was excellent. Well, hey, let me throw a few things at you since we uh, since we got just a little bit of time here. Sure. Um, so this is a preaching podcast um, and it's all about preaching. It's about um, the um, the style of preaching. It's about formulating sermons. Um, it's about voice and tenor and I mean, all the stuff, all the stuff that's there. Uh, and so I've been able to interview some really great preachers, but your voice is a little bit different. Your voice yeah. is a little bit different because you're uh, you're a historian. Yeah. But that definitely affects the preaching side, doesn't it? There's no question it does. No question. I'm, I think maybe I've been exposed to a few more styles. Uh, also, my background, I grew up in the military. And, you know, every, every new post had a new pastor, uh, you know, a new chaplain. Uh, I went to a Christian school where you had chapel twice a week with a lot of guest speakers. So I've listened to a lot of preaching. And also just having a historical perspective on it does change it. It does change it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, let me uh let me let me dive into some of this. How long did it take you? How long did it take you to localize or develop your speaking and writing voice? Probably about fifteen years. Uh probably about fifteen years. I mean, you know, I could speak to be understood pretty much sure. at the beginning of that fifteen years. But I, I'm going to say something that I'll probably say repeatedly in this podcast, as I do in, in my life's work. And, and you know, we co- we actually coach speakers in D.C. That's part of what my firm does. And I always say to people that your uh, most powerful speaking voice is your most authentic speaking voice. Now you've got to learn some tactics, you got to learn some strategies, you got to gain some skills. But when somebody is trying to imitate somebody else. Uh, when they're maybe going against their own grain, against their own personality to sound like, let's just say, Billy Graham or whatever pastor or speaker they admire, trying to be Churchill, trying to be Reagan. Uh, as powerful as all of those men are, the person who's imitating them artificially is not going to be at their, at their strength. So uh, I spoke fairly well early on. I mean, I had command of English and I could stand up and, you know, not, not look ridiculous. But I didn't really settle into my own authentic voice, authentic style, um, with the addition of some tactics and some strategies that I think is part of good communication, probably until about 15 years in. I was really maybe in my late, mid to late 30s by the time I really found out who I was, so to speak, in the pulpit or, those, or on stage. Which those two are connected, aren't they? Who you sure. are and how you speak. They are so connected. Well, and that's part of the problem. When you're, when you're 22, 23, maybe starting out in your professional speaking life, you barely know who you are. Mm-hmm. So you naturally gravitate towards the examples around you. Well, yeah. it doesn't tend to work well. And so we, we actually deal with this. You know, we're working with congressmen, senators, generals, CEOs in D.C. And what you'll find is they've gotten to the point that they are, have arrived, uh, you know, basically by imitating other people. I mean, it can work. You can do okay by imitating, uh, let's say, Reagan. But if it's not your personality, if it's not who you really are, if it's not the way you think, it's going to be a performance rather than authentic speaking. And people sense it, especially today with so much video, so many talking heads on television. People are more adept at figuring out whether you're authentic or not. And so I I would say late 30s is when I really kind of settled into my own skin. And that's when things began to take off for me, interestingly enough. 
<laughs> was there a uh, is is there a is there a guy that you have heard speak over and over that you just um, when it comes to politicians who you look at and you go that is their authentic self like that is them through and through. Well, uh, I would have to say that uh, Ronald Reagan was being his authentic self, um, but I I tend to like a lot of different styles. I think there are, there are a lot of so I like. And by the way, I'm I'm going to speak across the political aisle, so that's I, fine. I, I don't 100%. know if anybody in your audience is politically, and I, you know, Doesn't you can matter. imagine for these purposes, I imagine you don't care. Yeah. Uh, John Lewis. John Lewis is not anybody's idea of a of a dramatic speaker, but he's authentic. Mm-hmm. And what I like about him is he comes with his heft. You know, he marched with King, and he was at the Nashville, uh, you know, Woolworths counter riots and violence and all of that kind of thing. Um, and so when he speaks, he speaks less as a person who's skilled in rhetoric and more with the heft of his life. So I value that. Uh, then I like Ben Sass, uh, Sass. He is uh, the senator from Nebraska, and uh, he's a historian like me. And so he, he's younger, he's got less personal heft, but he's got greater command. He's Ivy League educated, he's been a university president. So, you know, he comes with the real command of the facts and the, and the, and the pop and the sizzle. And I like that as well. Um, so I like a variety of styles. There's no one person who's dramatically, uh, impacted me as, as written speech. Churchill is probably the one who's impacted me the most. He was a master of crafting, uh, mm. speech, although the way he delivered doesn't translate well today for a young audience, but it sure did work uh, in England during world war II and in the rest of the world. Yeah. And it seems as, it seems as if there, maybe it's just a culture that we're in now, but you kind of have to have some other things put together when you step in front of a camera or in front of a group of people, you kind of have to have yourself kind of put together in a, maybe, maybe a more stereotypical masculine form, maybe where what Churchill did was incredible on that side because he didn't look like that kind of guy, No, but commanded it though. Yeah. Churchill was actually short. Uh, People thought he was taller, but they saw pictures because he had broad shoulders uh, he fought a stutter all of his life, and he had actually gotten up and given a speech in Parliament early on, which he had completely blown, uh, and he was humiliated by it. So we have his notes, his hand-edited notes uh, from his later speeches, and they would be typed out in double space. but then he would put the staging into it. Pat yourself, look for words, is one of them that's in there. So, so he's literally going... You know, he's speaking and he's kind of patting himself, you know, and, and looking, searching for the word, but it's right there on the page. <laughs> he's, got, he's got the staging directions right next to the word he knows he needs to have. So the, he just developed that staging. And by the way, bear in mind that most of his speaking is broadcast. So all of these pregnant pauses, all of this kind of stuff he put into his voice. When, and by the way, this is a man with a lisp and a stutter. Um, maybe the greatest, you know, speaker in the history of, of, of the Western world at, up to this point. You know, Kennedy said that he, uh, marshaled, uh, marshaled the English language and sent it into battle. And that's exactly what he did. So uh, the key is to be in your own skin, be who you authentically are, and then learn some, be strategic, learn some tactics, learn some things, you know, that you need to do well. And that's, that's, that's what's powerful. Everybody's, when we coach people to speak, we start with something called tele. Uh, the tele is what you transmit before you open your mouth. So I'm looking at you right now on the screen. There you are, young man, beard, dark hair, cool haircut, certain look, a certain shape of your face and your nose, certain if, you are, if I was seeing you standing on a stage, your body would transmit. So what are you, what are you saying to the audience before you even open your mouth? Um, 
with the kind of speaking we're coaching people to do in D.C., we ask them to take stock of that. If you're a heavyset African-American woman, what are the assumptions about that in the audience? What about if you're speaking in the South? What about if you're speaking to a white businessman's organization? You understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, so you constantly are thinking about the interplay between what you transmit, spoken and otherwise, uh, and what the audience is reading from you. So I won't go on about this at great length, but I'm 6'4 and about 275, so I'm a big guy. Also, my eyes are deep set, as you can probably tell. So my eyes are not expressive like some other people. So I make sure that I express emotions with hand movements and I speak and I move my body and I turn to the audience uh, because I can look like the big dumb jock who they can't read emotionally. Uh, well, there's, there's a little quick read of me. So somebody coaching me would say, now this is how you might come across. Here's how, here's how we're going to bridge it. Here's how we're going to bridge to the audience from what you look like. And you can imagine how many variations on that theme there are. If I weigh 500 sure. pounds, if I'm a skinny little poindexter-looking guy, if I'm a good-looking blonde, I've got a, there's a woman I work with in the Senate who's small and blonde and Southern. You can imagine the biases and the, and the assumptions about her. So she comes out roaring, you know, mm -hmm. and she really does a great job. She's actually, uh, to put it humorously, too pretty for the job, in a sense. You understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, but you have to bridge those things. And it's as true in preaching as it is in any other kind of speaking. Yeah. That's um, when they had the elections, uh, when, when Barack Obama was, was running for president, uh, both of my daughters were in grade school and they held an election at the grade schools. Mm. And so they came home and I asked my daughters, I said, <clears throat> I said, uh, so who did you vote for in the election today? And I have one daughter who is all about justice and fairness. And I have one daughter who is all about um, the veneer of the uh, way things look and the way things sound and the way sure. things appear. And my oldest daughter, who is all about justice, she said, I voted for, um, was it, was it Mitt Romney? I voted for Mitt Romney. Yeah. And she said, because the Brown guy already had a turn, <laughs> but, but my, my younger daughter, she said, I voted for the Brown guy. And I said, you did? And she said, yes, I voted for Obama. And I said, why is that? She goes, because he talks so good. Yes, yes. You know? Well, I mean, politics aside, I'd much rather be listening to Obama now than Trump. You know, what? I'm not even giving away what I believe politically. I'm just saying. Absolutely. Pure rhetoric and smooth and uh, articulate. Uh, sure. Uh, left or right. Let's, let's, let's go back to somebody who, you know, can string English together. And that's, that's, that, that is a factor in American politics, fortunately or unfortunately, you know? Yeah. 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 You're hundred percent right. Well, that's, uh, that's cool. What were the, what were the, uh, what were a couple of the other things that kind of helped you develop and localize your voice a little bit? I learned the power of story. Uh, I do not like the kind of speaking that's just, or especially preaching, that's storytelling, just, you know, story, story, story. I believe you need to exegete the text. I believe you need to, you know, come with the heft. But most scripture uh, is embedded in a story. So tell the story. Uh, bring out the personalities. Bring out the times. Bring out the customs. Uh, and make it a story. It sticks in people's minds more. We, the science has proven that uh, the least challenging way for the brain to absorb information and retain it is story. So I learned story. I have an unusual sense of humor. I like to laugh. I like to play. I like to talk smack with my male guys, male friends. And uh, so I learned to bring that to the stage without being, I'm not off color, but you know, without being too rough, you know? Sure. I mean, in, in the average church, women are maybe 60%, 70%. So I learned not to bring too much of the, of the roughness, but I, but I have fun. I like to tell stories. I pick on myself. So I learned humor. Um, 
and then I also uh, so I story history uh, grammatical historical approach to scripture and humor were natural for me. Um, I had to learn to nail the clothes. I don't just mean altar call, but I mean you know I, I was a mm. little. I'd rush. I, I, I loved speaking. I'd I speak rapidly like a Yankee on drugs, and so I'd get to the end of a sermon and I'd just close it. And I realized <laughs> that if I slowed it down and had a, took a few minutes, um, that I could that I could you know nail it to their lives, so to speak, and, and really take time with it. So I had to, you know, <clears throat> most everybody has a has natural gifts, and then they've got to call in reinforcements for what they're not good at. Yeah, and the closing wasn't. I wasn't that good at that. Um, I tend to be a little bit up in my brain, so I found that numbering my points helped. It's not something I do because it, it's a certain style, you know, the the, the traditional Baptist three three point sermon kind of thing. That's, I wasn't, I didn't buy into any of that. I just found that even having seven points at least helped people hang it, you know, on on some kind of a structure. Because I, again, talk fast, have a lot in my brain, can tend to gush it out. So that that was a good strategy. So there were a number of things like that that really helped me. But most yeah. of it was steeping in the text. Uh, coming organically from scripture, showing them how alive scripture was, how fun it was. Um, I don't like the fortune cookie approach to scripture. Let's take a verse. Let's never explain it in context. Let's just use the use the words as though they were spoken yesterday. I, I, I find that to be <clears throat> so. Yeah, uh, yeah, my whole style was kind of declaring war on that. Yeah, are there passages of scripture that make you laugh? Yeah, I, there are. I, I I think there's a lot of humor in scripture, and there's a lot of humor encoded in the Hebrew. But a simple one that I really like. We all remember the, the time when the story of David and Goliath. We know that David's brothers are out there with the armies of Israel. Goliath's taunting the armies and saying, you know, you guys are stinky and you're pansies and all that kind of stuff. David is sent by his father to deliver uh, food to the army or to his brothers, you know, because mm-hmm. the families had to supply the soldiers. And uh, David goes, says some things, and he, you know, he's the youngest brother of a whole bunch of brothers. And you can just feel in what he says next, this younger brother moment. He says something, and his brothers basically say, go back and tend your sheep. And David, who is, by the way, he's about 13, 14 years old, he goes, now what have I done? <laughs> and the, what I love about it is you could take that right into yep. my living room with my Absolutely. son and my daughter a few years ago. They're older now. But, you know, the younger brother thing is, now what have I done? I can't do anything right. You know, that kind of thing. And um, and that statement right there, there they are, the Goliath taunting the armies. You got all these military guys around. You know, it's classic. But David, for a few moments, reverts to little boy being hassled by his big burly brothers. Mm-hmm. And of course, that helps us remember how young and how Absolutely. naive and how you know pimply he really was before he goes and takes off Goliath's head. Yeah. And so I, I like it. It makes me laugh, but it also helps set the story in context. Yeah, I I, I appreciate that line where when he says. Uh, can I even talk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I even talk? Yeah. And the NIV is now. What have I done? You now just, you I... feel the thirteen or fourteen years of Big Brother's putting him down for everything yep. he does, you know. Yep. But he's a but he's but, and it's good for us to remember that a little pimply 13, 14 year old kid went out there and with the help of God, you know, planted a stone right in Goliath's head. Yeah. And uh, I like I like the fact that the Holy Spirit orchestrated. The scripture to be written that way, yeah. Uh, so that we 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 have that really kind of embarrassing, evocative moment right before a great victory, and we so it helps us not put too much confidence in the flesh. Yeah. Well, when you think about when you think about stars and silver bars at the dinner table, and then you've got this guy who's who's sitting there who plays a harp, right? You know, and right. tends sheep and throws rocks all day and talks about right. these animals that he's killed that. 
you know, no one's buying into it. No and, one's buying it. You didn't kill a lion. Shut up. <laughs> or a bear. Come on, yeah, fella. A bear, you, you little twerp. Shut up. Pass the potatoes. Right, right. No. Sure you did. Let me guess. You grabbed it by the mane. You struck yeah. it with, right. Yeah. Sure yeah. you did. Right. You know. Yeah. Well, just what it, <laughs> right. right. What it does is it really kind of amplifies how much more God was involved in that thing than right. just, you know, Oh, David, I was, uh, I'd sent you this email earlier that I'd been, I'd been doing some writing on David for the last couple of years. And one of the things that kind of occurred to me is, you know, David's, David's credentials to fight Goliath happened while he was working a monotonous job, yes. which I think is a thing that, that men these days forget, you know, they want the title, they want to be in a different place, but they don't, listen, you're in a job, like you're in a place, you're doing a thing. There are so many wonderful skills you can learn right there where you're at that will conquer giants at the next job. Are you or someone you know wanting to make a difference with your life, but you're not sure where to start? At Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri, they help students discover the kingdom assignment that God has for them and then train them to carry it out. Ozark prepares students for all kinds of Christian service, biblical communication, biblical justice, youth and children's ministry, counseling, missions, organizational leadership, worship and creative arts, and much more. Ozark's close community, Bible foundation, and commitment to service prepare students to take the gospel to every corner of the globe as ambassadors for Christ. And Ozark's affordable tuition offers a quality private Christian education at a public university price. Ozark Christian College, your mission is out there. Your training starts here. And that's my whole story. You know, I don't have one dramatic, like I didn't just up and go to Harvard and get my doctorate or something, you know. Um, My whole life is just progressive. Mm. So I graduated from undergraduate school and went out to West Texas and pastored for 10 years. And those were those were some hard years, man. I, I you know I was I grew up in Germany because my father was an army officer. So for me to spend the first ten years of my professional life in West Texas, in Abilene, Texas, by the way, I love Texas, but Abilene, Texas, Abilene people are sweet, but it is a town of about a hundred thousand with a mentality of a town of about five thousand. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was definitely the Yankee. You know, I'm not just I'm not just from the north. I'm from Germany, right? <laughs> you know, by that by, right. by by upbringing, not by ethnicity. Right. And, uh, oh man. So I, I really, everything I learned, you know, every book, every new lesson, every failure, every new mentor God sent my way, you know, that kind of every conference, it was just piece by piece by piece and doing monotonous, monotonous things. And when I first joined the church there to become the number two pastor and help it grow about 25 people, I mean, it was, it was, it was bad. So all that to say that I couldn't agree more. And, and I, I, it's important that we not exalt these people in scripture in terms of their personal character, but rather pay attention to the lessons they had to learn. I mean, David's just a messed up little kid whom God uses, you know, in a sense, there's some character stuff we want to learn, but I like, I like the fact that what he gains, what he acquires, you know, you can imagine, you can just picture him out there at about eight years old, you know, doing a slingshot at trees or rabbits or sticks or whatever. You're just talking to sheep and saying, shut up, you know, and just being irritated and bored. But that's 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 the that alone wouldn't have killed Goliath, but God right. anointing him at that moment is what did it. So it's a good lesson for all of us because all of us have the you know flipping burger stages of our lives. Yeah, uh, am I right? Am I right? Uh, and, I, and I sent you this ahead of time. I don't know if yeah. you saw this question. Am I right on my assessment of Jonathan and David, where Jonathan seems to be the one who initiates this relationship with David over and over and over? 
And David doesn't seem to reciprocate. And maybe he does reciprocate uh, on some level, but you never verbally hear it until after Jonathan's death. Is this, is this right? No. You're absolutely right. And by the way, that's that's so much one of my favorite stories that my son is named Jonathan. I named mm-hmm. him after that, Jonathan. Uh, you're absolutely right. And again, what we've already alluded to is part of the answer here. Picture David at about 13. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know, you'd be probably not old enough to have a 13-year-old child, but you're probably not hearing a whole lot of affection unless that child's a girl. A 13-year-old boy is not exactly, I love you, I so appreciate you, you're awesome kind of thing. <laughs> they're, they're kind of self-absorbed and waiting for you to do something new for them. Right. So, but Jonathan's older. Uh, Jonathan is at least in his 20s, at least, if not even a little older than that. So you've got an age thing going on there, and I think that plays into it too. But I I love that progression. I teach it all the time to men about the covenant relationship between those two men. But you're absolutely right. We do not hear uh, David affirm his love for Jonathan until after he's dead. And then he says it in a way that is so sweet to me, although it's sometimes misunderstood in our modern world. You know, your love was as the love of women. Well, it's not sexual. Uh, you know, when my wife says, honey, I love you. I'm proud of you. I believe in you. I'm telling you, I walk out of this house 10 feet tall. I mean, I'm like, my wife believes in me. I'm ready to kick it. Right. And that's what Jonathan did. He, he spoke those words that inflamed David's soul and allowed him to endure. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a, it's very much a one-sided relationship. In fact, at the very beginning of that relationship, as you well know, as David is talking to Saul, explaining how he, you know, killed Goliath and so on. The Bible says that Jonathan loved him as himself, hmm. gave him his sword, gave him his tunic, gave him, you know, et cetera, uh, and made covenant with him and loved him as himself. It says it twice. We don't have any response from David. <laughs> as far as we know, David's just standing there going, I'm awesome. I just killed the giant. You know? But <laughs> Jonathan loved him. Jonathan saw that spirit on him. You know, Jonathan's mm-hmm. the kind of guy who turns to his armor bearer and says, let's go kill these guys. These unsized Philistines. And they climb up a cliff and, and wipe these guys out. Jonathan and his armor bearer, who's not even a warrior. So it's all Jonathan. It's yeah. all Jonathan and God. And then finally, David realizes what he's had. And I don't you love, I'm sure you do love the tail end of the story where he goes, anybody still alive mm-hmm. of Jonathan and Saul's house that I can bless? And there's this yeah. little chef, you know, who's, who's lame. But David, David loves him for the rest of his life. Yeah, that's a really good one. That's a really, really good one. Yeah. Um, do you have uh, in in your team of guys that kind of help help hold you together? Do you have the Jonathan types, the ones who just instill a boldness in you, regardless? Yes. Yes. As you know, I'm a big believer in a man having to have a band of brothers, and since we don't have it naturally these days, as earlier generations sometimes right. did, we have to be intentional about building it. And my guys are very much that way. They not only check on me morally, which I want them to do, you know, they ask about everything from eating to porn to women to, you know, just tiredness and whatever when I'm on the road all the time. Uh, But they also tell me that they believe in me. And by the way, it's two-way. This is just, I'm just talking about their treatment of me, but I do the same with them. We've got a couple of guys who are well-known, my band of brothers, and we're all out there, you know, contending for the kingdom. And, um, and, you know, we check with each other and and inspire each other and speak the words and remind each other and have nicknames for each other and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's I think it's essential. A man a man needs a woman who loves him and believes in him. But I'm going to say this, and I'd say it with my wife standing in this room. She'd be nodding her head. That's not all he needs. Agreed. A man's got to have other men believing in him. And so I love my wife, crazy about my wife, and inspired by her words. But I need other men who say, "Man, I'm so proud of you for overcoming that thing." And now you're really prepared to have an impact. Go go to Germany and preach, and I'll be praying for you. I'll check on you, but. 
but I'm proud of you, you know, and, and seeing good things in your life. I mean, you just, you just like, that's what you need. I've got five or six guys around me just like that. They're my, they're my Jonathans. Yeah. That's such a, that's such a valuable thing, especially, you know, when you're talking about trying to figure out who you are, trying to figure out your voice, your direction in life, what's the thing that you do. I mean, if, if, if we're right, if we're right, when we assume that whoever informs our, our uh, decisions defines our direction, you know, whoever comes aboard and says, you know, hey, I'm all about you. I want to love you. I want to make you whole. I want to help you get to the next thing. I want to push you to the ne- to that next place. You know, those are the those are the things right there. That, but I need that from men. I don't need that. Yes. From, I don't need that from women. You know, that's, that's right. And I'll tell you the foundation of all of that. One of the core truths that we've got to understand is that we don't see ourselves clearly. Agreed. A, man, a man who is self-defined is defined by a fool. And um, I'll use a quick little illustration. Not long ago, somebody showed me a picture from a party, and I didn't recognize who the picture was of. I said, who is this? He said, it's you, fool. Well, I had shown up at a party. I was sunk into an old couch, you know, down in a basement. I had my T-shirt just happened to be stretched over my stomach. I, I, I had about nine Oreos in my mouth, you know. Right. I was halfway through a blink, so I looked like I was drunk. Nobody was drinking, but I looked like I was drunk, you know. And um, and I was my my head was shoved down into my shoulder, so I looked like Job of the Hut on a bad day. Uh-huh. And I'm telling you, uh, it was stunning to me that I could look like that physically because I'd never seen myself from that perspective. I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror, I Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> right? So, you know, I can I can bring that chin up. Right. Well, my point is, if I can't, if I don't even know that I can look like that physically, what might be going on on the inside of me that I can't see? Okay. And I, I really have a concern for, for leaders, particularly Christian leaders, by the way, and church leaders, because often we don't have people around us willing to speak the truth to us. Mm. I don't mean corrective truth about how bad last week's sermon was. I'm talking about personal stuff. I'm talking about sitting around, you know, with a burger or over some barbecue, just talking about life. How do you, what's going on? What do you see? Yeah. How can I improve? That kind of stuff. And I believe men have got to have some some guys around them with whom they have a free fire zone where they anything that needs to be said to make them better will be said. And I've got those guys. They don't wait for an invitation. They don't sit around, you know, uh, you know, squirming their hands together, nervous about who's going to talk to Stephen. They'll just step in, say, "What's up with that?" You know, I'll just make up something. This isn't really true, but like if they hear an angry cell phone call with my wife, they'll go, "Hey, hey, hey." What's going on at home, man? That was sure bitter. What's up with you? You know, yeah. they're not gonna. They're not gonna. If I take three looks at the backside of the waitress at a restaurant, they're gonna ask me about it. You know, right. and it's not that I, I don't have any moral deformity. I don't have. I haven't had big affairs or whatever. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying um, this is what they check on. This is what they ask. They they know the ways of men because they're men. Yeah, and that's why you shouldn't just have your wife, you know, who adores you and thinks you're awesome as the only one holding up any kind of mirror. So I right. I'm, I believe every man needs that particular Christian leaders. Yeah, that's the metaphor that we use all the time in our in our men's group is you stand in the mirror and you do your hair and you see yourself from the shoulders up and you think to yourself, man, I'm looking pretty good. You have somebody else hold the mirror and back all the way up. It's like maybe a few pounds overweight, pal, you know, maybe maybe a little sloppy shirt and pants don't match. You know, you know, I was excuse me. (coughs) Sorry about that. I was lifting weights recently. And and when I was doing curls in the mirror, looking forward, I looked pretty good. You know, I looked okay. (laughs) But I happened to talk to someone with my back to the mirror, and when they pointed somebody out over there, I turned and caught myself <laughs> at that turned angle with your butt and your hips and all that kind of at the And I, I looked like the Michelin man or something, like the Pillsbury <laughs> right. Doughboy. Right. And five minutes before, I would have thought, I'm awesome, man. I'm yeah. doing well. Yeah. It's all about perspective. That's why you need people looking at you from the back, the side, and whatever, Absolutely. so to speak. 
um, to see who you are. I mean, I've even had my guys watch what I do on television sometimes, and I come, I come off, I come off of the stage and, uh, and into the green room feeling pretty good. They'll later say, "Well, that was fine," but I didn't know what you were talking about on that one answer. And <laughs> you sure, you sure did get mad at Sean Hannity, you know, whatever. whatever you know? Right. And um, I'm like, I thought I was pretty awesome. Yeah, well, yeah. maybe for a amateur. I mean, you know, those yeah. dog, you know. Yeah. But it's good. It's good to have that. You got to have people like that in your life, or you're going to screw up. You really are. Yeah. What are some of the uh, What are some of the pitfalls? Uh, I know in your firm, one of the things that one of the things that you do is um, you go back in and you kind of scoop up the messes that that mostly men, I'm assuming. Yes. Yes. Uh, that these men, CEOs, pastors, uh, politicians, and they they kind of make a mess of things and they they drop the ball as 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 a lot of men do. Um, when you, when you, when you get back in to begin to work on these guys and pick these guys and put them back, put them back up, to, uh, put them back together. Um, not all of them are Christians, correct? No, most of them aren't. In fact. Yeah. Yeah. And so as you step into their life and you begin to talk to them about these kind of truths, how are they heard? Well, it's, it, they, they really do receive them usually because they're desperate and because we have, we are perceived as being experts, but, but I got to tell you quite frankly, most of it's stuff that any good church and any good men's group would be processing. For example, I've never worked with anyone who's engaged in what we call a leadership crash. And we're in there trying to fix both the company and maybe the, certainly the person and maybe the family, um, where bitterness wasn't an issue. Mm. And, uh, it's, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning here. Here I've got the successful guy, internationally known CEO of XYZ company. Um, and he slept with the secretary or went off with the money or was found drunk in Peru with 16 prostitutes or whatever it is. You know, you've heard the stories, uh, or he's a congressman who blew his franking privileges and is going to jail or whatever. And, um, and when we drill down, when we really go in, what started making you feel entitled? What got you bored with what you were doing and made you want to blow up your life for excitement? Some of them will fall to the floor and burst into tears about what the coach said when they were 17, hmm. about the father who, you know, abused them or left early or what, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes yeah. it's, it's as light as the girlfriend who told me I was too ugly to marry or, you know, that, I mean, whatever the situation is, but these guys are reaching back way before their success. And some of these guys got doctorates from three schools and, you know, they're millionaires and they're flying around in jets and they tripled the income of the company. The board thinks they're awesome, but they're sitting around processing what coach Smith said about them, uh, when they were 17 or maybe when they were 21 in college football, um, as though, as though it's the defining thing in their life and all the rest of their successes. So bitterness is the issue. We have our, the soul has a memory like an elephant and we all endure enough offenses, enough wrongs, enough slights, enough lacerations, uh, to major on those if we want to. And, and we, the problem is when you're processing your bitterness, you start to feel entitled. Uh, you start to, well, I'll just take this money. I, they owe me, that kind of thing. And I can't tell you how much that's at the, at the root of guys, uh, especially men, prominent men, really falling apart. Mm. Um, the other thing is usually when men start thinking about doing the wrong thing, they distance themselves from their friends. You see a, you see a theme here. You need a band of brothers who will stick closer than a brother. Uh, and who will be up in your face. So the CEO, the, the popular pastor, uh, the famous broadcaster, everybody adores them. You know, uh, it's rock star kind of thing. But you've got to have some men who don't care. I, I, I tell pastors sometimes, you need to have a cigar chomping pagan who's a friend uh, and who will just tell you stuff, doesn't, doesn't care what the, what the church board thinks, doesn't care how your last sermon was. They're asking you other stuff, you know? Um, and if you don't have that, if you if you only have adoring, fawning fans around you, you're yeah. in trouble. Yeah. And 
prominent, powerful people do. And that really causes problems. So I could go on and on. Yeah. Um, but that, that's a lot of it. That's yeah. a lot. Those, those two, those are two <clears throat> things that are, that are common in every single uh, leadership crash we've ever intervened in. Yeah. 10 signs of a leadership crash. Um, yeah. Yeah. The two that, the two that stick out in my head the most, maybe three that stick out in my head the most, uh, b- building a third world. Yes. Is that, is that, am I saying that right? You are building, saying that right. Building a third world, yep. um, forgetting fun and yes. lo- and losing the poetry. Yes, absolutely. For me, for me, those right there are the big ones. Like yeah. Those are the, to me that, I mean, they resonated so strong and you've right. seen that, you've seen that over and over with guys, right? All the time, all the time. You know, you are in what you're doing because there was some beauty of it. There's some poetry. There was some some awesome thing you wanted to help or buy into. You believed in the gospel or you wanted to impact your generation or, you know, something. Um, and if you lose that and it just becomes duty and you're having to rush into the studio and talk to people who bore you and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, eventually you're going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Losing the poetry, losing the vision, losing the, the thing that got you lit up. Um, and, and, and then you know, forgetting fun, I, I, I'm a, this is especially true of people in spiritual leadership, as you well know, religious leadership, mm-hmm. um, men especially need to blow stuff up. They need to pee in the sink. They need to go out and bark at the moon. They need to do things. And, uh, that's why we need controlled violence. I, I, you know, I'm not, I don't mean anything abusive. You know, I play racquetball and guys run into me and hit me with the ball and, you know, tell me I'm a fool and get out of the way and, you know, then maybe pick up football games or whatever. You know, you put two guys in a break room with nothing there, but a piece of paper, they're going to fold it into a triangle and turn it into the Super Bowl, right? right. The average guy can't even throw away a Coke can without doing a fade jump, you know? So <laughs> what I'm saying is men need that, and but 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 it, we live in an overly domesticated world, and so you've got to schedule that stuff. You've got to plan the hunting trip. You've got to go out and be rowdy. You've got to have that stuff in your life. And I think it, it, it's part of the reason we have so much domestic violence is that men don't know how to channel their natural drive that way. So if you, if you don't, if you are forget, every person I've ever worked with who has crashed had no balance when it came to going out, blowing things off. You know, guys need to get out in the woods or need to get away. They need to be a little bit raw, maybe run around naked and skinny dip or whatever. I don't mean anything immoral. I understand. I just, I just mean as the, maybe if I can quote the Rolling Stones, get your yayas out a little bit. Just have a little <laughs> bit of blow off, you know. Yeah. If all we do is live in cubicles or churches or pulpits or, you know, classrooms, we're just going to be, you know, dem- overly domesticated and we're going to resent the heck out of it. Yeah. And so men, men need to know how to have fun and how to schedule that. So. When I see a bunch of guys from a church going on a hunting trip or going fishing or, you know, killing each other on the basketball court or, you know, having a regular weekly game of pickup football before the TV games, stuff like I love seeing that. <clears throat> yeah. I, don't mind the, I don't mind the bruises and the scratches and the band-aids. I think that's all good for us. Yeah. My, um, one, of the, one of the greatest testaments to that our, that our men's group was doing something strong was that our wives, there's probably seven or eight of us in this group, our, our wives started saying, we love it when our men go to men's group. Yeah. Go. Isn't it about time for a, for a men's night? Isn't yeah. it? About, yeah. You guys meet every two weeks, right? Isn't yeah. it? You guys haven't had one yet. Have you? Have you it's about time you, <laughs> yeah, there's something well, where the rest of the world and, and the majority of men are hearing the clamoring of women saying, you're never home. You're never home. And right. our wives are saying, listen, go, because you're going to go and get sharpened and forged and honed and you're going to come back and you're going to be better. And this is going to be beautiful. And and to me, like that was like, that was one of the coolest things. Even my own wife said, it's about time for a men's meeting, isn't it? Absolutely. absolutely. Because then we're home, we're really home. When we're home, we're really home and there's better quality. Absolutely. 
Yeah. I mean, when I'm hanging with my guys, and she knows this, I'm in better physical shape. I'm yeah. more attentive to her. And by the way, I've, I've t- you know, I'm sure you do the same thing. I've told my wife, look, anything happens with me, you know who to call. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm telling you, I get anything, anything you're concerned about, anything that you're nervous about, and certainly if you need help while I'm out of town, these yeah. are the guys to call. So it's, it, it's, it's, that is absolutely true. And if, if we had more of those kinds of men's groups, uh, then we'd be turning around this toxic masculinity crisis that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, we come home smelling like uh, like expensive cigars, but we are a lot better men. That's for sure. That's well, for sure. And, and and a good woman knows that. A yeah, good woman. Absolutely. I have the same thing. I I I live in a downtown situation here in Nashville, my office where I am now. And when I come home, I have to hang my clothes on the balcony because they reek so badly of Cubans. <laughs> uh, but the fact is, I don't mean Cuban people. I mean Cubans. Right. And, <laughs> I understand. Uh, so my, but my wife is like, welcome home, get those clothes out of my house. Uh, that's exactly but right. But she knows how valuable it is. The laughing, yeah. the playing, the talking, you know, it's not that immoral is going on, of course, but she knows these guys are as likely to turn to me and say, what the heck are you talking about? As they are to talk about victories. And it yeah. really, it really is valuable. It really is yeah. valuable. Well, well, I don't want to, I don't want to hold you up. I don't want to hold you up. I know you're going to have to go in just a second. Um, I do want to tell you one thing before I ask sure. you this last question. Sure. One of my, one of my fondest male, masculine, manly memories is, is me in Georgetown tobacco. Um, <laughs> the first great. time, the first time I walked in there in that very narrow, is it still there? Yes. Yes. Love very, it. very narrow store. And it's like a, uh, it's like a, I don't even know. It's like a, like a queue, like a, like a line yes. for, and you go down one side and you go back down the, and I bought a Royal Jamaica cigar and I walked out and I walked down Georgetown smoking this big, huge torpedo Royal Jamaican cigar. <laughs> one of my greatest, one of my greatest memories. I just absolutely enjoyed it. So you know, you know the place. That's a great I know place. the place and I bought Royal Jamaican Churchill's there as well. So I know what you mean. Yeah, well, we can't find them anywhere else. So that's it. That's it. Well, hey, uh, what kind of encouragement can you offer the preachers and the guys who are in the pulpit right now who desperately, desperately need to, uh, they're they're questioning the impact of their ministry. Um, They're questioning if, if they're, if they're cut out for it. What kind of, what kind of encouragement can you offer these guys before you go? A whole bunch of things. Let me just bullet point them. First of all, globally, Christianity is spreading more rapidly than any time since Jesus came out of the tomb. Globally. Uh, it's just it's just that it's in a decline in some places and it's rising in other places. Second of all, everything from media to the way millennials think to the thought forms of our society are setting us up for the thought forms of the gospel, the storytelling of the gospel, the power of the gospel. Don't see society as moving away from the gospel. Realize it's being prepared in the same way the Roman. And we all we all took a New Testament survey class of some kind, and the the professors always started with the intertestamental period and how the Roman period, Roman philosophies, and Greek philosophies prepared the way for the gospel. The same thing's happening now. Be encouraged. And also, I have to tell you that I spent ten years pastoring a church that never got until the very very end. It didn't get much beyond about seventy five to one hundred people. Um, but I stayed there. I did what I thought God was supposed to uh, called me to do. The, those 75 people, I mean, it's not like they've gone out, all of them, and you know, entered Congress or become presidents, but some of them are pastoring. Many of them are having a redemptive impact in their communities. Um, size is not the issue. Our media culture makes us think that you know, you got to have 500 people to have an impact. Well, I'll tell you, that's not true. Uh, it's just not true. So be faithful where you are. Uh, live a well enough rounded life that you're not just living on the ragged edge and about to open a vein because you know, you're not 
Uh, you're not going to get all your fulfillment and all your joy as a man just from your work, even if it is the ministry. Don't let them tell you that. So have hobbies, have buddies, have a band of brothers, do rowdy things, do other things. But be encouraged that you're part of a global movement that is rising dramatically, that's having huge impact, and that even here in the States, we're not in a post-Christian era, we're in a pre-Christian era, and you're doing important things. Build your skills, grow. God will move you into positions of prominence and influence in time, but embrace every season of your life. Stephen Mansfield, thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom. I appreciate it. I hope we can do this again sometime. Hey, it's great to be with you, man. Talk to you soon. We'll see you.